0: We're so glad that you're here with us at Liberty. Uh, If you would take your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3, we'll be in Nehemiah 3 and 4 this morning. As we continue our series through Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll be in Nehemiah this morning. The next three Sundays, we'll take an opportunity to look at our Advent uh, series and be able to uh, look at the person of Jesus who has come and the joy uh, that comes with Him uh, in the incarnation. And so uh, we'll look at that the next three Sundays. And then uh, New Year's Day falls on Sunday. so we'll have uh, a special message uh, on that day. And then we'll be back in the Ezra Nehemiah series then uh, the 8th of January. And uh, so just wanted to keep you, uh, give you a heads up of what's to come in the weeks that follow. It's good to see all of you this morning. I have a poem that I want to read part of for you this morning. I don't naturally like poetry, but I'm trying. So for those of you that do, this comes from a poem by George Herbert. And I'll just read part of it. The title is Sunday. Sunday's the pillars are on which heaven's palace arched lies. The other days fill up the spare and hollow room with vanities. They are the fruitful beds and borders in God's rich garden that is bare with their parts which parts their ranks and orders. The Sundays of man's life, threaded together on time string, make bracelets to adorn the wife of the eternal glorious King. On Sunday, heaven's gates stand open; Blessings are plentiful and rife, more plentiful than hope. This day my Savior rose and did enclose this light for His that as, as, as each beast his manger knows, man might not of his fodder miss. Christ hath took in this piece of ground and made a garden there for those who want herbs for their wound. Thou art a day of mirth, and where the weekdays trail on ground, thy flight is higher as thy birth. Oh, let me take thee at thy bound, leaping with thee from seven to seven. That we both, being tossed from earth, fly hand in hand to heaven. What a glorious opportunity to look at Sunday, a day in which one day, being stringed together with many Sundays, make, as he said, a bracelet to adorn the bride of the glorious King. Each and all of these small pieces, the things in which we gather on Sunday, reminding ourselves that this day is not intended to feed us for an entire week, but is to give us a delicious meal from which we will look forward to tomorrow morning and even maybe this evening for another snack, another food, another opportunity to feed on God and His Word. So brothers and sisters, I pray this morning we are encouraged and fed well from Nehemiah 3 and 4. If you would stand with me, we'll read in honor of God's Word this morning from Nehemiah 4. You'll see why here in just a moment. We won't read out loud Nehemiah 3, but we'll begin reading uh, for our time this morning in Nehemiah chapter 4 and beginning in verse 1. Now when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. This morning we get to look at God allowing his people to work for his kingdom. God allowing his people to work for his kingdom I'm so sorry I had to do that. How many of you bought a tool set, a toy tool set for your boys or girls when they were small? Anybody? We did, yeah, just like you. We bought a little Black & Decker workbench or someone bought it for them, I don't remember. Had a little drill press that made noises, a circular saw that was plastic, hammers, screwdrivers, it was really fun for the time that it lasted. And you give it to somebody else to enjoy. But no one ever gave their child a set of toy tools and expected them to build a house. Or even a birdhouse, for that matter. A plastic hammer is not going to bang nails. That little screwdriver is not really going to turn a flathead screw. In the same way, no one ever gave their child a toy kitchen. And expected to come from that toy kitchen a culinary work of art. Even the easy-bake oven that supposedly worked, no one, no parent was really expecting anything delicious and nutritious out of that. I don't even know how it works, but I don't think anybody was expecting anything to come out of it that would be yummy. On a much grander scale, and even more unbelievable than those things, is the God who made the universe and everything in it gives us actual gifts and abilities, gives his people actual gifts and abilities and allows us to do real work with them for his glory and for the furtherance of his kingdom. Genesis chapter 2, 15, the Lord God took the man that he had just created and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Even before the fall, a man is placed in the garden and given a responsibility, a mandate to work for God, to keep this garden that God had just planted. All throughout the biblical story, God allows his people the opportunity to work and accomplish his purposes on earth. How much easier could it be if he would just have done it himself? How many mistakes would he have kept from happening if He would have just accomplished it on his own. Here in Ezra and Nehemiah, God has moved decades ago in the heart of pagan kings to send his people Israel, who were in exile, to come back into the land, to come back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that they might worship, make sacrifices, rebuild. Sometimes... Working for God's kingdom looks like actually getting tools and building things. But at other times, working for God's kingdom looks like loving your wife, raising godly children, working hard at your job, serving the church well, loving your neighbors, and loving God most of all, all while fighting sin and desiring to live for God's glory. It is incredible that God, the creator of all that we see and all that we know, allows his people to work for his kingdom. It's amazing that God allows his people to work for his kingdom, and it's incredible that God allows his people, his people that he possesses, to work for his kingdom, not our own, but that God allows us to work for his kingdom. But there has to be a right way to work for God's kingdom, right? Because Psalm 127 verse one says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. There is a way in which we must build, a way in which we must work for his kingdom. We will look at Nehemiah 3 and 4 this morning and see how the people there worked for God and for His kingdom and how that work they did prefigures the better work that is to come in Jesus. It is the work that Jesus has already done for us that is the basis from which we now work for God's kingdom today. First, when we look at Nehemiah chapter 3, you see in the beginning here, Nehemiah 3, what we did not read is. Uh, given to us sort of as though it's almost as like a excel spreadsheet you have names of people who worked the section of the wall in which they repaired uh, the people that they worked with sometimes you have their occupation Sometimes we know what this person did. Uh, they were a goldsmith, or uh, this person and his sons did this portion uh, of the wall, all the way to this portion. And we, sometimes we get that information. It's almost as though Nehemiah is keeping a list of volunteers so he can write thank you cards later to tell them how much it meant to him, the work that they did. But in Nehemiah 3, there's a couple of cameos that stand out, and that's really where we want to point to. The rest of it, we see 41 lists of people, 41 groupings of those who are working around this entire city wall as they're rebuilding or restructuring the wall or its gates. In a couple of weeks, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the architecture of the city and how some uh, recent, within the last decade, we've seen uh, some recent discoveries where they've actually found what they genuinely believe to be Nehemiah's wall that was built being at least five to six, maybe in some places nine feet thick. It's not just a, a wall, one thickness of uh, cinder blocks or bricks, but it's an incredible wall. And when that incredible, incredibly thick wall would be destroyed, there would be a lot of rubble, a lot of stones, and a lot of rock in the way. You need a lot of people. And so here in Nehemiah 3, we have the list of those who are working on the wall. And it begins in Nehemiah chapter 3, in verse 1, with the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, the priests themselves, who begin to work on the sheep gate. As God's people work for his kingdom, God has them led well by servant leaders. So first we see in Nehemiah 3 and 4 that the people of God, as they desire to work for his kingdom, ought to be led by servant leaders. We see this in Nehemiah 3 verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. Here are the priests, ones whose gifting, ones whose abilities were not in stonemasonry. One who probably had, as some will say, dishwater hands. You know what that means? They're not used to doing hard physical labor. Manual labor is not the same as sifting through scrolls and looking at uh, books to read. These men were ones who this was not their natural habitat. And yet, as servant leaders, they are the ones who are coming and they're helping to fix, repair the sheep gate. The sheep gate, as it sounds, was a gate that they brought sheep through. I know, this is so simple sometimes. But it laid directly adjacent to the temple where the sheep would come in and be brought into the city so that they might be sacrificed. It was sort of like the priest's front door. And so the priests, like many others in this city, are repairing that section of wall that's right outside their house. You can read Nehemiah 3 and see several times where it says just that. They fixed what was opposite to their home or right outside of their door. And so the priests, especially the high priest, not normally engaging in this kind of work, demonstrate unity with the people as they stand in solidarity with them. And leadership, by example, Notice they not only build, but they're the only ones in Nehemiah chapter 3 that speak of they consecrate the doors and the gate and set its doors. They show that this is all being done, not merely as labor, menial work, but spiritual work for the kingdom of God. As they consecrate the gates, they consecrate it twice, it says, consecrate it all the way down to the place in which they stop. This stands in stark contrast to a couple of verses later the servant leadership of the priests the the high priest even in direct contrast to the lack of leadership or the lack of serving from the Tekoite nobles notice in verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 3 Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 5 and next to them the Tekoites repaired but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord Again, this stands in stark contrast to the rest of the people who are working, all of them with their sons, working, laboring over either gates and repairing its doors and setting them in place or on the wall itself. And here we have nobles from a particular group of people who were present before the exiles returned to Jerusalem, we know, mentioned twice in this chapter. I wonder why they're the only people group who are mentioned twice in this chapter, Maybe it's almost as though they feel like we need to work twice as hard because those nobles aren't working at all. But what is mentioned, what stands out is that the nobles refused to stoop to serve their Lord. Now, the Lord here is capitalized and It could be their Lord Nehemiah, the leader of the people, or even the leader of their people group. Whatever it is, it's unsubmissive attitude of these nobles in refusing to take the leadership role or in refusing to obey the leaders that have been set up. But it might be as the text seems to be saying, at least the translators of the ESV, that this is a nod to that they ultimately are refusing to stoop in submission to the Lord their God. As the rest of the people of Israel and those who are with them are rebuilding, the Tekoites refuse. There was no submission to Nehemiah, the plan of working together as a people. They were unwilling to stoop. They thought the work was beneath them. They would not be told what to do in this instance. Instead of stooping to pick up rocks and build, rebuild the wall, they refused to do so. God allows his kingdom to be built by his people. But the irony is when they refuse to work, he puts them in scripture forever. <laughs> you know, there has to be some Tekoites even to this day who are somewhere saying, I told you we should work. I told you this was not going to look out. Now look at us. We're in the Bible and it's shameful, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't work. They refuse us to, but that stands in stark contrast to the leadership that is seen by the priests. And it also stands in stark contrast to Nehemiah himself. There's one name that's not listed in Nehemiah chapter 3 as having rebuilt or helped build the city walls and its gates, and that's Nehemiah himself. Now, we know Nehemiah is involved with the city because of Nehemiah chapter 4 and the rest of the book, where it mentions him over and over again. He'll mention that he's been the one walking around the city, helping others to feel safe, know what to do, know what the plan is, but Nehemiah doesn't mention himself. He mentions the people over and over again by name, by family, by vocation. It's not as though he just mentions them of uh, that group of guys over in the, that northeast quadrant, or this over here in the southeast sector. you know, He knows them by name, and he knows them enough to know what it is that they did for a living. Nehemiah does not mention himself and where he built the wall. We know he's there. He knows these details. He lists himself with the peoples, He praises the work of the people, as he says in chapter 4, verse 6. The people had a mind to work. Not the leaders did a great job of setting things in order, but giving praise and thanks to the people. And the best way that Nehemiah serves his people as a servant leader is that he points them to the true shepherd. Nehemiah leads his people to God by praying with them, by telling them in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, to remember God and not be afraid. It does not remember me, Nehemiah, your leader, be strong like me, but remember God who has led you out of Egypt through the Red Sea, God who has delivered you from slavery, brought you out of the exile. Now he doesn't mention all of those scenarios in Nehemiah 4, but he mentions, remember God, the one who is awesome, who is great. And in so doing, let that spur you on to continue to build and fight for your brothers and sisters. Nehemiah, the priest, the high priest, stand as an example of servant leadership. God's people need an example of servant leadership when they work for God's kingdom. But these are all shadows. These are all shadows that point us to the servant leadership of the great shepherd. The one who not only lives among his people is made just like them. One who has no home or possession of his own. But comes with the express mission of serving God's people. Jesus serves God's people while he is living by healing them, teaching them, showing them the way to the Father, washing their feet. John chapter 13. Jesus shows his disciples that the way up is down, that the last will be first, that to be a good leader, you must be willing to serve. Jesus Kneels and washes his disciples' feet to their own complaints about they should be the ones who are washing his feet. But he sets an example of one who comes and serves all the way to the point of death. As we know, Philippians chapter 2 speaks of the condescension of Christ. He comes in the incarnation, the celebration of Christmas, and yet he ends his time with his people serving them to the point of death. God's people work for God's kingdom, but they need spiritual leaders. They need servant leaders to set an example for them. But they also need to be willing to serve willingly in areas outside of their gifting. There's two other cameos that we want to point to. One is, there's another reference to somebody in Nehemiah chapter 3. And it's to a guy named Shalom. S-H-A-L-L-U-M. Shalom. This is a name that you can see in a lot of places in the Old Testament. It seems to be a, quite a popular name. We see it in a number of references uh, in the kings and here in Ezra, Nehemiah, and other places in the Old Testament. But this Shalom is serving as he is overseeing a portion of the wall in verse 12. It says, Shalom, the son of Hal- Halaheth, Halahesh, excuse me, sorry, I, so offensive to Shalom. But he's Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. He's quite a ruler. This district of Jerusalem in which they're building, he's ruler of half of it. And he's serving, repairing the walls. What a servant leader. But notice what it says about Shalom, that he is rebuilding the walls, he and his daughters. Now that stands out. That's the only time that it's mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3. Every other reference is he and his sons. We don't often see ladies who are working in a way like this in the Old Testament. But Shalom here is serving, and he's doing so with his daughters working on the wall. In those days, it's amazing. People are also listed as goldsmiths, merchants, rulers like Shalom. Women who are not used to building city walls. Merchants, guys who are dressed nicely, all of a sudden having to roll up their sleeves, maybe getting on their not Sunday best so that they can help build the wall. People who are not used to this type of labor, gathering together, working in ways outside of their natural gifting or abilities or vocation in a way that seems outside of the norm, and doing so that they might join in solidarity with their people. You notice when you read these professions, and the people who are mentioned, it's not all professional builders and stonemasons. But it's people like you and I. It's people like you and I with diverse vocations and gifts and abilities. It's you and I who are diverse as men and women, boys and girls, who are gathering together to work in unity with one another to fulfill God's mission. They were serving willingly in areas outside of their gifting. Now it's true that we want people most of the time to serve here in the church for the kingdom of God in areas where they're gifted, where they feel like the service that they are doing is what is right up their alley and is life-giving to them. However, even more than just being able to have a niche where I can serve that's right where I feel comfortable, even more important than that is a heart attitude that says, I'm willing to serve wherever God wants me to. I'm willing to go and do serve wherever God has in mind, whatever is needed at the moment, however God might see fit to use me. That kind of attitude can be used in thousands of places and in multitude of ways, but to say, this is how I'm gifted, this is how I'll serve in one specific way, yes, can be used mightily by the Lord. And yes, can know yourself really well. But these people are willing to serve in areas outside of their natural gifting, of their vocation. We see this often in the Old Testament as well. Moses was called to lead God's people, he makes it really clear this is outside of his comfort zone. I do not want to be a speaker. I do not want to get up and have to talk to these people. I can't do that very well. David was a shepherd boy, but God had plans for him to become a king over all of Israel. And in the New Testament, the disciples are all fishermen by trade, but God calls them to be his followers and to serve people. They could have told Jesus that they were not really cut out for people work. They could bring some fish to the next potluck, but people, we just don't do that very well. God often works through our gifting, but he wants us to be willing. Is there a need? Can you fill it? Don't be the Tekoite nobles, unwilling to serve in areas that they feel like are beneath them. And maybe instead of waiting for a spot to come open in an area of ministry that you like or that fits you comfortably or you've served in before, why not take the opportunity to serve somewhere that is needed? Maybe that's new to you. Maybe in an area you don't feel like you would do very well in. When you serve or wherever you serve, remember you are serving because your God allows you to. God in His kindness to His people allows us, gives us the privilege of being able to further His kingdom for His glory. Even as frail and as weak as we know ourselves to be, even knowing the mistakes that we will certainly make on our own. He has gifted us. And we should serve in a way that allows leaders and others around us in thinking through those things that God has called us, gifted us. But may we serve in a way that allows others to be filled with joy. Nehemiah, no doubt, and the way that he's recounting this, other than the Tekoite nobles who wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord, everyone else, it seems, worked together in unity and solidarity. The people had a heart to work and a heart to serve, brought joy to Nehemiah as he saw them serving, serving with joy, men, women, different vocations coming together, being led by servant leaders. It can be hard to serve in an area where you don't feel gifted or called, but serve with open hands and join the area of ministry. God gives you at that time knowing it will be helped by others coming and serving with you. Or it could be even better if others did that job instead of you. You are serving God's kingdom for God's pleasure. For as long as God allows. We don't serve our own kingdom for our own pleasure or because we're really good at a job. There was a former pastor at this church, and I won't mention his name so as not to embarrass him. He might be listening online or here in person. Who knows? But when he was retiring, he said of the new pastor and elders that the best was yet to come. He knew that God could do more through someone else than maybe God had chosen to do through him in the time he was here. He was expectant that God would do more through others than God had done through him. God had gifted him and called him and put him here for a time. But he was confident in the God who calls his people, in the God whose kingdom is being built. That's why Nehemiah is so powerful in Nehemiah 4. Remember God. That's the call that he gives. And he shows the people by praying it's incredible example that is given of a pastor, of a leader, of someone who's serving in an area for a long time to be able to encourage somebody coming along behind them. You can do this in a much better way maybe. Even serving in the ministry grow in ways that maybe otherwise didn't in the time that you were there or someone else was serving. Here, 41 groups of people are serving. It took a lot of people working together, serving one another and the people for the glory of God and the good of the community. The kind of leadership and those kinds of workers can go a long way and do a lot for the kingdom of God. So we have servant leaders who lead us. We have those who are serving together even outside of our gifting. And we see this even in the person of Christ. Now, we have to be careful because when we refer to the person of Christ, he doesn't have an area of gifting that is outside of something he can do. We all have areas of gifting and ways we can serve, but Jesus as the creator of all mankind is the one uniquely gifted to receive all worship in heaven. Heaven was his eternal home, receiving all honor and glory from the heavenly beings and his people was his eternal due. And yet he willingly relinquished his hold on that position to willingly come down and serve us in a role he had never taken before. And taking on flesh, Jesus became something he had never before been. And that was human. I don't think I could talk about Jesus being uncomfortable in his role as a child, but no doubt he still endured growth spurts as a young man. The awkwardness of learning how to run with longer legs and figuring out a growing body. He still got splinters and blisters. Siblings probably made fun of him. A mother was telling him what to do. A Jewish mother was telling him what to do. He felt hunger and need. Those had to be strange for sure, we imagine. And the dichotomy is summed up in a song that says, hands that set each star in place, shaped the earth in darkness, cling now to a mother's breast, vulnerable and helpless. One day on the throne of heaven, the next in the womb of a teenage girl, willing to come and serve in a way in which he had not before, for the glory of God and the salvation of his people, What an incredible example to us as his people, as we might see God calling us to serve in ways we otherwise had not thought we were gifted or called to do so. Sometimes we can think of calling in ways of bigger aspects. What am I gonna do vocationally? What am I gonna do with my life? Am I gonna serve on the mission field? Am I gonna serve here at home by working a job, by being a missionary where God calls me? We can often lose the day-to-day, the Sundays-to-Sunday, like we mentioned in the poem before, and neglect the menial tasks of the everyday and the waking up and loving our husband, the waking up and the serving of our family, the waking up and loving the ministry roles that God has given you right there in your home, God has given you right there in your workplace, your cubicle as a place of ministry, where God has placed you to work good and hard for your corporation, that you might be an example, a light to those who are around you. As Philippians chapter two says that you might shine like stars by not grumbling or complaining. That's it. In our culture today, we can imagine what a coworker who doesn't grumble would all of a sudden stand out like a neon light. And maybe that would be us serving even in that way, the kingdom of God and furthering his kingdom by not grumbling or disputing, working hard, loving God and loving others. We can also, as we see here in Nehemiah chapter 4, expect opposition. So as we desire as God's people to work for his kingdom, we can expect opposition. The people are not stopped by the opposition. The opposition that comes in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 1 from Samballot and Tobiah uh, two guys, and it mentions an army, of people of Samaria. The opposition comes merely at just all bark and no bite, right? It's just yelling. It's just threats. It's just mocking. You noticed, I thought this was humorous, verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, Samballat, and he said, yeah, what, if, what are they building? If a fox goes up, he'll break down their stone wall. You want to be like, really? That's the best that you have? A guy who's making fun of us for our construction abilities? You just imagine the merchant who's like, well, sure, this is not what i normally do for a nine-to-five. But you're making fun of our building? You're making fun of our abilities to make something with our hands? Well, as Nehemiah and the people continue to build and not buckle to the threats, the opposition gets louder and angrier, and all of a sudden comes closer to home. But it never actually does anything to them, at least not in this chapter. There's yelling, there's threats, there's a, yeah, we're going to kill him in the middle of the night. And nothing, as you read chapter four, happens. The opposition continues to be threatened, continues to be present, but Nehemiah does what he did. And what Mark showed us last week in Nehemiah 1 and 2, Nehemiah prays spontaneously. It comes so quickly. Verse 4, right after Tobiah the Ammonite is jeering them about a fox and breaking down their wall, verse 4 comes so quickly that you almost think it's Tobiah who's saying it. But as Nehemiah prays, hear, O God, we are despised. And then he prays an imprecatory prayer that their taunts would come back on their own head that God would take them into exile, plunder them while they're in captivity, that he wouldn't cover their guilt, but he would cause them to be judged for their sins. Sounds like Psalm 35. Sounds like a lot of places in scripture where all of a sudden the people of God are asking for God to be just, to be righteous. God, stand up and fight those who fight us. Psalm 35 Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against them, against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind. Let their way be dark and slippery. Let them know the Lord is pursuing them. Sheesh. You have to ask yourself as you read this kind of thing, are Christians allowed to pray this? We were reading Psalm 35 last night. One of the kids said, I thought Jesus told us to love our enemies. Yeah, he does. And yet here, what we're asking, what Nehemiah is asking for justice, for righteousness. There is sin that is being committed, and he is asking God to act according to his justice. God does justice in the scriptures. He does so, so much that in Revelation 19, near the end, uh, where God is continuing to bring out justice on those, meeting out judgment on those who sin, that the people cry out. Revelation 19, verse 1, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. He has wiped out the evil ones. And they say, hallelujah to that. Praising God, remembering what he has done, what he has promised to do. God has promised to be a God who will bring out justice. He will mete out judgment on sinners. In Revelation 19, they sing praise to God because he has shown himself to be faithful. Faithful. There was opposition. There was a mention of opposition. Philippians, Paul writing to the church there in Philippi says, You can expect opposition that will come to you in similar ways like it's come to me. And Paul mentions three ways in which he's opposed by Christians in Philippians chapter one those who preach the gospel but do so out of ill motives, desiring to harm me while I'm in prison. Expect opposition, but it might come from your brothers and sisters in Christ. It might come from other Christians desiring to oppose the work of the kingdom of God. Paul also mentions opposition by non-Christians. He states their end is destruction, their God is their belly. He mentions opposition also in chapter 3 of Philippians by those claiming to be Christians, but are not, but are requiring other Christians to follow their laws and to slip back into Judaism. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he says in chapter one, verse 27, in the midst of all these things, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and I see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel That there is unity, that you are working together, you are fighting side by side. There is expecting the opposition, and when it comes, you're prepared for it. Expecting opposition doesn't mean the opposition will become easy, or that all of a sudden it won't feel hurtful. It's never easy, but expecting it means we ought to be prepared for it. So that when it comes, we can strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, he says. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. These building the walls are expecting opposition. It happened in Ezra. It's happening in Nehemiah. We're seeing it regularly as the people of God are continuing to rebuild. God's kingdom continuing to be established there. In Jerusalem, as the walls are continuing to be rebuilt, they're expecting opposition, and it comes. And opposition came for our Savior as well. One who comes as God in the flesh, come to establish his kingdom here on earth, and he is opposed by almost everyone. He's opposed in some ways uh, by the religious leaders especially. But Jesus, when he faces opposition, prays for God's will to be done and he goes forward into battle. He knows what is to come, and he doesn't shy away from it. He promises that if the world hated him, they will hate his followers as well. But in the Great Commission, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he states to his disciples as he gives them the Great Commission, one of my favorite lines of the whole thing, all power on heaven and on earth is given to me. All power is mine. All power over all things. So you can trust the one who has already defeated death and sin. The evil one who opposes you, whether in that moment is a believer or not a believer, whether in that moment is someone uh, who is acting as though they are a Christian or not, those who are opposing you, the evil one has no right. They're not free reigning right now. The evil one does not have the ability, is on a leash, and can only go so far. But Satan will always oppose a good thing, no matter what it is. So expect opposition to the kingdom of God and to the work that God is calling us and you as a church, as a people, in ministries to support, that God will always, Satan, excuse me, will always be opposing those good things. And we expect opposition to come. Lastly, As we see here in Nehemiah chapter 4, the people continue to work and they continue to be prepared to fight until the end. So, as we continue to work as God's people, as we have the privilege of working for God's kingdom until He comes again, we want to work and we want to fight until Jesus returns or calls us home. The people prayed and they set up protection. They didn't just pray and leave themselves vulnerable. But as Charles Spurgeon named a journal that he had published, the sword and the trowel, they worked and they're prepared for battle. It seems like, as the people mentioned, Nehemiah chapter four, like the work is too much for them. There's a real point of despair in Nehemiah chapter four and verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble. We can't do this on our own. We won't be able to rebuild the wall. The enemies are present. They will come and they have said they will kill us and stop the work. And the Jews who live around us keep pleading with us to stop and to come and to live with them, to come and get out of the city, to stop the work that we're doing. Over and over again, Nehemiah says, 10 times these neighboring Jews have come to them and said to them, you must return to us. Stop the work that you are doing. But Nehemiah's commendation to his people is do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Know who you are. Know what your identity is and remember your God. It seems as though all this is too much for them. They will die trying. Neighboring Jews are calling on them to quit, but they don't quit. They come together and they fight and they build. And the commendation is twofold. Do not be afraid of them and remember the Lord. Do not be afraid of them because they are not powerful as the Lord is. They are not the ones who are in control. Do not be afraid of them. All they can do is kill you physically. But they cannot stop the work. They cannot stop God's kingdom being expanded and growing. Remember the Lord. Remember the character of our God. And fight for your brothers and your sisters, your daughters, your wives, your homes. And this, as we continue through chapter 4, is exactly what Nehemiah and the people do. They continue to build. And each man, as he goes around and he surveys the wall, have a sword in one hand or on their side, on their hip, and everyone is paying attention. Everyone is staying vigilant. Through the night, they have people who are taking shifts. So we labored at the work. Half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Verse 21, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. Stay where they are, that they may be a guard for us by night and labor by day. And verse 23 the vigilance and the servant leadership of Nehemiah, not quitting. So neither I nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. There is not a moment where we are slacking off, where we are stopping the vigilance. We are continuing to fight, continuing to build, continuing to be prepared. Remember the character of your God and fight sin and evil together. They're prepared to fight while they're working. May we as God's people take the commendation as given to us in the scriptures, like Zechariah ten nine, that we should remember the Lord with their children. They shall live and return. Ephesians chapter 2, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision... By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Seems pretty bleak. But remember, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Revelation 2.5, to the church at Ephesus, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the work you did at the first. Remember your God. Remember his character. Remember what he has brought you from and brought you to, and fight. For us, the battle is not ultimately just about those who oppose us externally, but even internally. We fight against flesh and blood, as Ephesians chapter 6 says. So Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And put on the whole armor of God, that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. So take up the whole armor of God, that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Knowing as Galatians 5 verses 16 and 17 say that we have the spirit who resides within us, that we don't walk alone, that we are not by ourselves, but that we ought to walk by the spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. There is an internal war within us. Of our hearts, a desire to do uh sin naturally, and yet needing to submit itself to our Lord. Not like the Tekoites who would not submit to their Lord. May we submit to our Lord and Savior, the spirit who resides within us and follow his leading, fighting until the end, fighting sin, fighting those who oppose the gospel because we have one Jesus. One who in Revelation 19 speaks of one who will come. One who will fight in the end for us all and usher in eternity. One who comes as a savior of the world in Revelation 19 comes as a judge on a white horse. So in Revelation 19 at the end, we fight to the end because Jesus will fight to the very end. In Revelation 19, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name that is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It is this Jesus, the one who is the servant leader, who came and willingly gave his life for us. And it is the work that Christ has done for us on the cross that allows us the privilege as God's people to work for his kingdom and for his glory. And may God continue to give us grace as we desire to serve him for his glory and whatever he calls us to do, recognizing if it's outside of our comfort zone that God will provide for us the means by which we need to sustain and continue the ministry he calls us to. And may it be for his glory to further his kingdom would you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for fighting for us. We thank you that in the end, when Jesus comes, that all will be made right, that sin will be judged for all of eternity. And that those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation will find in you the just judge grace and mercy, fellowship and communion for all of eternity. Thank you for working in us and through us by your spirit. Thank you for building your kingdom here and including us in it. And Thank you for Jesus, who rules and reigns over all things, who came and gave his life for us. Give us grace to work for you and for your glory, to fulfill your will here on earth as it is in heaven and for the world without end. Amen.